Hello, builders. Welcome to another episode of the People of Growth podcast. I'm your host, Taylor Bailey, and today our guest is Reverend Dr. Tim Hine. In this interview, we talked about how Tim became a minister and how he helps other people who want to follow the same path. We also talked about the Unmade podcast, which he co-hosts with his childhood friend, Brady Heron. It's definitely a good listen. Let's jump right in. Reverend Dr. Tim Hine, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing? I'm doing well, Tyler. Thanks very much. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm really excited to talk about kind of what you've got going on with your work and some other side projects as well. Can we start off by just you explaining kind of who you are and what it is that you're working on? Sure, yeah. Well, I'm a minister. That's kind of my primary uh, vocation, I guess. I'm a minister. I'm an ordained minister in the Uniting Church in Australia, which is sort of the third largest mainstream Christian denomination. All of all that I do really comes under or, or is an offshoot of, of that primary vocation. But I, but I have two jobs, two roles within that, if you like. Half the week, I am a minister at a local congregation, Malvern Uniting Church, which is in the sort of inner suburbs of the city of Adelaide in Australia. And I minister at that congregation. My wife is a minister as well. And she's there on staff and we have a team of people and we lead a congregation and we've been doing that for about a year and we really love that. The other half of the week, I'm also on faculty at Uniting College for Leadership and Theology and Flinders University. So that's a college that does the training of other ministers and people studying theology and ministry for all sorts of reasons. And, um, and so I teach it, I lecture there and do research through there. and. Um, I really enjoy that as well. So those are my two kind of hats that I wear, training ministers. And then I'm also, I guess, a practitioner in a local church as a minister. Very cool. Have you found that as a practicing minister, minister, it's helped you to be able to train a little bit better because you have that practical everyday experience as well? I do. Yeah. I've only recently gone back to, to doing that. There's a sense by which Many of my colleagues who are on faculty, many of them are ministers as well. Others are sort of more specialized in their particular area of academia. But you're always doing ministry all the time. And there is even beyond that an understanding in our church. We call it the priesthood of all believers or the ministry of the whole people of God. What that means is that every Christian is involved in God's work all the time. But there's a particular ordination, you know, that sets apart some people to do the um, equipping and leading of that, which is, which is ministers, ordained ministers. And we, uh, when I'm doing that and training people how to do that, I really enjoy that. But for me, having done that for about nine years in the college, I was itchy to get back onto, I guess, what you could call the front line, you know, getting back out there and practicing it again. But that doesn't imply that I haven't been doing ministry all that time. You know what I mean? You're working with students and you're volunteering in different programs and doing all sorts of things. But in terms of leading a local congregation, I was really keen to get back and do that. And it's marvelous to be doing both. They are mutually enriching. (laughs) Awesome. I love that. What do you find the most satisfying about leading a congregation? Uh, look, it's, it's really rich. Having been back there for doing it for a year, uh, I find it enormously satisfying. And it's interesting to think why. Part of it is the, the, there's a leadership 
part. That is, you're working with a group of people, a large group of people in a community. So the way they come together, the way they relate to one another, you've also got staff in the midst of that. So I enjoy all those kind of operational aspects of, of um, offering to offering leadership in a, in a community like that with all the variables. And, and, and in that you're dealing with people and real life. And you're often dealing with people at the very precious parts of their life as well. A person's faith is something very personal and deep to them. And it flows out into all sorts of things they may be facing in, in life and looking for advice on and, and seeking God's direction on. And so dealing with people in, in that way is a, an enormous privilege. And I've really enjoyed that as well. I've really also enjoyed preaching. A lot of people, when they think of a minister, they think of someone up the front of a church, you know, kind of preaching and it's not the whole job. It's actually just a small part of the role, but it is a bit that I really enjoy. And I have to say, having, you know, been a lecturer for all those years, coming back and being able to sort of leave the footnotes behind and leave the PowerPoints behind and leave, you know, and just stand there and talk to people, be able to open the Bible. Sure, and, yeah. You know, that, that's fantastic. I've really enjoyed that. And that's something that I really relish. Really cool. I am very religious myself as well and quite involved in my own church from like a, from a preaching standpoint and also from a kind of daily, like day-to-day ministering, like you described and I think that is, like you said, that's really what's at the heart of Christianity is the things that you're doing when you're not at church, right? When you're ministering to people or helping people out, helping people through either faith crises or just, you know, discussing the gospel with people. And this this might be an interesting change for a lot of our listeners because we normally talk about businesses, startups, things like this. But I think that this is a, a really interesting area of exploration and I think that even for those of our listeners who aren't religious, we can benefit a lot from what you've been able to learn throughout your career and your ministry. I'm curious, did you obtain your training through the same college that you're working at right now? No, not initially. I went to another college, Tabor College, and did my undergraduate and then some master's work. When I came to be ordained, which is to be, you know, recognized by the denomination, if you like, credentialed in that sense, then they wanted me to do a bit of specialized study in this, the history of this denomination and a few areas that I hadn't touched on as deeply. And so I did that. So I did a little bit of study. And um, at that stage, the the process was that the faculty, you know, sort of had to look you over and, uh, (laughs) you know, analyze you. And, (laughs) And we have a whole comprehensive process of formation, you know, with psychometric testing and, you know, years of analysis. It's very, very important before they come to a place where they say, yeah, this person is a, you know, can be ordained as a minister in our denomination. That's a, that's pretty comprehensive. So I did a bit of study through there and became acquainted with it, but uh, I really only came on faculty here uh, subsequent to that. At the time, it was really strange actually, because I mean, I'd been involved in sort of, if you like, full-time Christian ministry roles for about 10 years before I became an ordained minister. I'd done a lot of youth work and I'd done uh, a role in schools, you know, doing seminars about values on identity and on and, uh, understanding drugs and alcohol and self-image and bullying, you know, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. I, and so I, I'd, 
I'd done a lot of Christian work and, and even done an internship through a church and, and all that. But yeah, coming to be ordained is, is, was a sort of another step to become a minister, if you like. You're really tying your colours to the mast or nailing your colours to the mast there saying, yeah, I'm, from now I'm going to be a uniting church minister. Just like it's like, oh, I'm going to be a Catholic priest or I'm going to be a, an, an Anglican or Episcopalian minister or a Baptist pastor. You know, they all have this, they all these different movements are all in some ways accidents of history and 95% of, of the beliefs are very, very much the same, but you're buying into that history. You know, suddenly it's like, oh, you're a, you know, from that group. And, and, and I hadn't grown up in this particular denomination. So I sort of had to think, oh yeah, well, okay, this is, I don't want to be a lone ranger. You've got to be under the discipline and under the accountability of someone. It's a bit like being a lawyer. You move to a new state, you've got to take the bar again to be credentialed by that particular state. And uh, mm-hmm. joining a denomination means that you're not a lone ranger. So at least someone's looking out for you. There's processes and there's the back end accountability is taken care of. And in the end, I found that was a good thing to do with this denomination. But yeah, then I joined their college and uh, helping to train future ministers. And I really, really enjoy that, particularly with younger people who are considering it as a vocation, because I think it's a marvelous vocation. It's a, it's a, it's a wonderful life, the diversity of people and the history and the academia and culture. Um, it's fantastic Christian ministry, actually. So let's talk about the youth. You, you just talked about kind of younger people training them up in the ministry. What does it look like for someone who's interested in following that path? Where's kind of the starting point? And then what are some milestone steps in becoming an ordained minister? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I always wanted to from when I was very young. I remember we went on a trip through Holland because my father's Dutch and we we're traveling around and all I wanted to do was go into the different cathedrals and go up in the pulpit, you know, and I always saw myself one day as becoming a, a minister. So all, all through my childhood, that was my longing. And, and, and we would sort of talk about that as being a calling, uh, like a calling from God, a vocation, mm-hmm. you know, which comes from the root essentially means um, from vocatio, which means voice. It's your calling, you know, to find your, your voice, your thing. And we understand that for every part of life and people might experience that in a whole range of different areas. They always wanted to be a fireman or they always wanted to be a lawyer or they always wanted to be. And and so there's that sense of calling that I always sensed. And what you're doing is you're looking for other young people and and wanting to hear whether that's there, you know, why that, why do they want to do this? What's drawing them to it? It's a unique and quite strange role in a way. So you're trying to hear from them what's been going on through their life and in their mind to bring them to the point to want to do it. And I I mean, I'm mentoring a young guy at the moment as he's discerning that. And really you enter into a time with someone of saying, I think this is what God's calling me to do. I'm going to take some time out to really more specifically discern that and have conversations with a mentor. And we call that a period of discernment. You do a little bit of study, you test the waters. Generally you're volunteering somewhere, or you might even be in a paid, you know, kind of chaplaincy role or youth work role or something like that. And at some stage, then you, you go to a committee, a period of discernment committee, and you basically say, look, this is what I've discerned. And then the mentor also kind of writes something saying, look, yeah, I've journeyed with this guy. I reckon this is 
uh, or girl, absolutely with a girl as well in, in our denomination, then, you know, I think there's something going on here. I think this is worth exploring and testing and, and uh, this person has potential and they have abilities and they are a person with good fruit from their life and ministry and they've got good character that I can see. That committee then really discerns whether they think that's the case or not. And if so, then the person gets put before or nominated to go to a selection panel, which is a bit more comprehensive even again. And that one has, uh, that's when you have psychometric testing and a psychologist to offer advice on the person and what's going on with them and their motives. It's a bit more of an analysis and those processes are very quite tight compared to what they were some decades ago. They will be long interviews then, and you can bring a support person along exploring your beliefs and your, we call it your theology, your understanding of God and uh, what you feel you want to do and, and all that kind of stuff. It's a very vulnerable process, actually. It's, it's a real, it's like going for not just a job, but a vocation. The sort of thing that, you know, you would expect as people join the army or they join the police force, you know, it's quite involved. And, and that's what it's like for us too. At the end, they might, if, if, if it comes back saying, look, no, we don't believe, you know, this is appropriate. That can be pretty difficult for the person to hear. But sometimes they come back and they say, yes, we discern this is a good thing for you, but maybe not yet. We'd like you to go and have a bit more of exposure with this area of the culture, or you need to get a, a bit more life experience here, or you might need to, you know, deal with this sort of issue that you've talked about in your life first. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So that's interesting. But if, if there's not that going on, you know, then, then they affirm it, then you move in and then generally you start to t- study in a more intense kind of way. And you meet with a panel who would continue to track with you three times a year, looking at your formation. And then they, there's a whole, there's a whole range of characteristics and attributes that you need to be displaying and coming to understand. You need to get your head around an exposure to a multicultural society. Maybe you've been in a pretty closed little community and family and you need to get out and see a little bit more of the world. And they'll encourage you to do that, to deal and understand, engage with uh, the indigenous people in our country to see that character being developed uh, in you and your personal skills and counseling skills, as well as your academic knowledge and theology, you know, so there's a whole range of stuff going on there that forms you until you get to a point where you, they say, yeah, you're ready to be ordained. And then they have a, we have a wonderful ceremony and it's wonderful. People lay hands on and bless you and, 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 you know, you get into ministry and hopefully have a really rich and meaningful life. Yeah, that sounds like a great formation process of helping kind of walk someone through, okay, I would like to join the ministry. I'd like to kind of walk down this path, helping them to take steps to become the type of individual who will be the right fit for the ministry. Yeah, and you really want it to be as diverse a group of people as possible. Like there is a kind of a cliche image of, that, that maybe particularly in North America, you know, that the minister, the pastor is sort of this middle-aged guy, you know, on a stage waving a Bible, you know, but sure. <laughs> I, I, I tell you globally, you know, Christianity is the most multicultural religion on the face of this earth. You know, it's, 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 it's incredibly diverse. And so looking to help our communities reflect that as well is, is really important. So people, people, you know, boomers and Gen X and Gen Y and millennials and male and female and different cultures, you know, you want, it's just thrilling to see people offering leadership that are really quite 
different from one another and reaching out into different parts of the community. You've got like really big churches with hundreds of people and uh, on one end. And then you've got someone who's a chaplain in an aged care home, someone who's a chaplain in a prison doing really hardcore one-on-one slow, careful patient ministry. And then you've got people in administrative roles or me in like a tertiary academic role and then a local mm-hmm. church, you know, there's a whole range of stuff, people running projects and then working in non-for-profit community organizations. That's a whole kind of arm of the church there, you know, all these welfare and community development programs that come out of the life of, of the church. And for many of them are really quite large and significant in society now. So, that, you know, there's a whole range of things to do there. It's a, it's a really, um, yeah, well, like, as I said, it's a, it's a, it's a marvelous vocation if you're, You've got a leaning in that direction. Mm. Yeah. And it sounds like there's a lot of opportunity to serve in different capacities. So obviously your faith and, and your conviction has influenced a lot of your decision-making in your professional life. How does that strong faith influence the decision-making in personal life, family life? Look, that's, it's probably the most central core tenant of my life, my faith. And, and that is that, that I'm a Christian before I'm uh, a husband and father, even though being a husband and father are <laughs> deeply core to who I am, that they are far more important than being, you know, like a minister. Being a Christian, being someone who has said, you know, kind of yes to Jesus, who has said yes to me, you know, that's, that's, that's at the heart of meaning of the whole universe. That's the Christian understanding. So mm-hmm. that's... um. Uh, sort of deeply profound and all of the decisions of my life make reference to that or flow out from that. And that's the Christian understanding. It's not, you don't have things in a box over here. Well, that's my personal faith. And then over here is everything else I do with my life. Christianity says you do all things to the glory of God, which means that the way I act in traffic, what I do with my money, you know, how I relate to my friends, what I choose to do with my time, all of those things are inspired or flavored. They find their center in Jesus Christ, in this person of Jesus. That's now, look, I fail at that, right? I, <laughs> my, my selfish <laughs> <Everyone> motives. <does. laughs> oh man, I tell you, my, my, you know, my, I have all sorts of mixed motives going on all the time, you know, and, but, but, it's kind of like if you look at a keyboard, the middle C for me, you know, you talk about the first thing you learn when you learn how to play piano is you learn middle mm-hmm. C, everything. It's right at the center, you know, and, and everything sort of flows out from the center of middle C. And Jesus is my middle C, you know, whatever I'm playing, whatever I'm doing on the keyboard my whole life, it all finds its center around the middle C. And that's, that's Jesus. So it's, yeah, it's, it's really quite profound. I love that. I'm going to get a vinyl lettering on my while it says Jesus is my middle C in mind. <laughs> <laughs> that comment, actually, that, that example comes from a friend of mine, actually. And uh, Oh, does it? Yeah, he'll smile if he listens to this. So <laughs> That's funny. I really like that, though. I mean, like you said, Jesus Christ is the center of, of your life and everything that you're doing is kind of through that filter. Every decision you're making is looking through that filter of, as cliche as it is, you know, what would Jesus do or how would he want me to act in traffic, you know, with your money as a father, as a husband, all of these things. I love that. Like you said, you're kind of using that as your, you use an interesting word flavor. You, everything's flavored with that, that aspect of Jesus Christ in your life. 
Yeah, that's right. And the, the center and, and even like all of the, everything that flows in Christianity from that needs to find its center in Jesus Christ. So look, when someone looks at a church, right. And, or the institution of the church or anything like that, and they critique it, they say, I don't want that, or I don't like that, or that doesn't look right. Their critique may be totally valid, right? If, because the church institutionally loses its center, it drifts totally. Mm-hmm. It can it can be blind to its own evil, its own humanity, its own corruptness, its own poor motives. So the church needs to be centered again and again in Jesus Christ. So if you if you're critical of the church, it's like okay, you look at the church, you think I don't want a part of that. I say yeah, I think that's in some ways often fair enough. But look at Jesus, look at him. You know, like have a look in the in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You know, like the person of Jesus Christ. When you look like at him. It's hard to reject him. And you're going to say, oh, the church is trying to follow him. (laughs) Badly, poorly, but it's trying to follow him. It was a really interesting story. Many of you know, you know, the film, uh, The Life of Brian, you know, the classic film by Monty Python called The Life of Brian. It's It's a classic film. And the comedy guys, they tried, they thought about making a, a comedy film about Jesus, right? They were going to do a spoof, like a farce. But then they looked at Jesus and they again and read, and this is like, we can't make fun of this guy. This guy, (laughs) this guy, it's not funny to pay out a guy who's so obviously good to, to, to try and mock him. So they said they ended up coming up with a whole different script around a guy that was born, a child that was born, you know, in a, in a stable next to him called Brian and how he gets mixed up all the way through his life. And that becomes the classic movie, the life of Brian. But even those guys, you know, they're not believers, but you look at Jesus, it's hard to, it's hard to reject Jesus. And so then you've got to ask significant questions about who this person was. And the Christian understanding is he's the son of God. And so if you want to find God, you find it by, you know, looking at Jesus and allowing him to become the center of your life. And anyway, I'll, I'll start preaching if I keep talking. I don't really want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so, so it's, yeah. So it, it centers around the person of Jesus. That's the most important thing in my life, for sure. Yeah, I love that. And I like what you said about, you know, sometimes folks will look at a church and say, okay, that church, that's not for me, right? I think the same thing can be said about people. You might look at a person and you say, okay, that guy's a Christian. Christianity is not for me because that guy is not anything that I want to emulate or whatever else. But it's like you said, as Christians, we're not worshiping the Christian guy down the street. We're not worshiping a church on the corner. We're worshiping Jesus Christ, right? And so we understand that although you know institutions may be imperfect in the way that they administer things, or people may be imperfect in the way that they try to follow Christ, we know that Christ is perfect himself. And so we can look past the shortcomings of each other and realize that you know, Jesus Christ can still be the center of our lives without having to accept individual people and their decisions. But again, I don't want to go, I don't want to start preaching either. So <laughs> we can, we can keep it a little, a little higher level. There's one more thing I want to touch on with your ministry. We'll just touch on it quickly. We don't need to dive deeply because I don't think this is the appropriate place to dive into this subject deeply, but you've written a book called Understanding Sexual Abuse 
a guide for ministry leaders and survivors. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. This book came out a few years ago and it came out of some research I was doing around the nature of trauma. And look, part of it comes out of my own story as well. Um, and my experience of abuse, which occurred in childhood. And my story through that of recovery is of the church and leaders in the church being so enormously helpful. I feel like the church saved me in a way, being in a supportive community. The person uh, who was the perpetrator on this occasion had nothing to do with the church at all. And the significant leaders of the church, you know, did the right thing and supported and helped me. And they have done that all the way along. So I wanted to tell that story a little bit, but I really wanted to also write a book that would have been the perfect book to hand to me at a certain age, you know, when I got to the age where I was grappling and remembering what had happened and grappling with that and thinking about that, you know, this would have been a perfect book for me to read. And also a great book to re hand to a, a Christian leader who may be helping someone like that as well. And often, you know, the first person I disclosed what had happened to me to was a Christian leader. And they were so kind and so wise in the way they handled it. I, I just think, you know, other people have not had that experience clearly through history on occasion. And so what's a book that would be helpful to, because I think every Christian leader needs to get their head across a whole bunch of basic facts around the nature of this issue, which is hugely prevalent in our whole society. And I, they need to be able to understand how to respond a few facts around trauma and how that affects people uh, through their life, the enormous pain involved in it, the way that, you know, secrets work and, and all those sorts of things in order to help them to help people. So that's why I wrote this book and it's was very difficult to write because obviously uh, part of it comes out of my personal experience, but it's not a biography. I just touch on that a little bit because it's not a book about me but it touches a bit on my story and, and my wife's story as well, trying it to, to be a helpful book, a constructive book that someone might read. And the feedback that I get from, well, firstly from Christian leaders is, oh, this is really readable and helpful. I can get my head across, you know, you can't, there's so, this is such a complex area. It's important to know some things about this area. And this book helps you to, to get a good overview of it. And some really important stuff I draw from the very, very best, sources I can find really important psychology and good research to, to help that. So they find that really helpful to read, but the, the other emails I get from people is people who are survivors themselves. And they say, wow, I, I, thank you so much for this because it made me feel normal. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. it made me feel, um, it was so helpful and it was encouraging and constructive, gave them advice and gave them the courage to be able to take the next step in their, in their journey. But yeah, often I hear that it made me feel so normal because the way the trauma can resound and echo through your life can be so incredibly uh, painful and disorienting. So I'm, I'm really thrilled with, the book. I feel kind of proud. I think it's a good and a helpful book. It's not the only book that's like that. There's others there too, but writing that book was, I felt like a really important thing to do. And I was really pleased that, that it, it was published in, in America and in, in Europe as well. And yeah, there you go. That, that was a, uh, a pretty uh, interesting project on, on its own terms. Yeah. Wow. What a thoughtful resource to put together 
and being able to share your own story as well as input on how church leaders can best help individuals who experience different trauma. I think that's such a great thing for you to have embarked on. And my, my wife's a therapist and she has kind of opened my eyes to how common some of the different traumas people experience are. And I, I don't want to say common to normalize it, but mm. you know, a lot of people are experiencing big traumas in their lives. And that I can only imagine is a very, or can be a very isolating experience. And it's great to hear that you've gotten feedback from survivors who are able to kind of say, Hey, you know what, this has been helpful for me to feel like I am a, I'm normal, right? <laughs> that, you know, that I don't have to be defined by something that happened to me. I just think that's a, that's a great resource and a, a great book that you've written. Yeah. The trauma is, is the, the past hijacking the present. And so it feels present all the time, even things that have occurred many years before it, mm -hmm. it's, it's really hijacks moments and lives in profound ways. And, and so being able to be able to reach out for help, but to be able to get a sense of perspective and some information is incredibly, can be incredibly empowering for people. And it's incredibly common. You're right. It's, it's prevalent and it's, it's a, it's, it's a profound shame and where it derives. I mean, people receive trauma from all sorts of experiences from war and from all sorts of abuse, but where it derives from, from sexual abuse, you know, it's a profound evil. And uh, those who have experienced it have had a violation of their rights as a human and uh, what has been done to them is wrong and it's a crime and it's profoundly it hurts. It deeply, deeply hurts. So I talk about why that hurts and how that a little bit about trauma and how that affects our brain and our memories and how that works. And then a bit of advice on, on how the journey can be to healing with skilled people to help that. I'm not a therapist myself. So I was very careful just to educate people, not to try and give them therapy, but I just shared honestly. And then from the good sources about that. And I also gave them some really practical tips as well, you know, because I've received some therapy over, over the years. I've needed that from psychologist and from a counselor. That's for sure. But also, you know, just practical tips for living. Now, my wife, the final chapter is all around some really practical things as well about living in a meaningful way and, and so forth. So anyway, yeah, that was tough to write, but felt like it was an important thing to be doing. And, and I, and I really hope that people continue to find it helpful. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing that. I want to pivot Lastly, to the Unmade podcast, this is how I discovered you. I just stumbled upon this podcast that is frankly hard to describe. I suppose it's easy to describe. It's you're a podcast talking about different podcast ideas, but there's there's a lot more to it that seems to have hooked me and I think hooked a lot of other people. Can you talk a little bit about how you got started with the Unmade podcast and... <laughs> And what it is, like what it, what it really is at its core. Yeah, well, that's quite a pivot, really, because <laughs> it, <laughs> the, the, look, the podcast is a whole other thing, man. It's it's fantastic. I, I I really enjoy this particular project and and creating it. I do it with my friend Brady, Brady Harron, and uh, he's an old friend. We've been friends since school. And really, we were talking about doing something together because he has a whole range of really incredible projects. 
on uh, YouTube and other podcasts. And so we were thinking about doing something together for the sheer, you know, joy of, of working together and um, a podcast seemed about right. And as we talked about ideas, we, we realized the constant ideas that we were coming up with is, was actually a good starter for a conversation. Mm-hmm. It was a good theme in itself. So really, we've ended up, this podcast is a podcast where we discuss ideas for a podcast that we'll never make. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> we have subsequently made a couple of them, like just one-off specials where, 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 where people have sort of seemed to cry out for it or where we've sort thought it was a really fun thing to do but that's what we do it's it's a lot of fun it's uh it, <laughs> it's a great amount of joy and we're up to about i think 64 episodes now plus a bunch of specials uh it's been going for several years and i love it i really love it it gives me an enormous amount of joy and it's great to have a project in life that is so joyful you know that is like making music in in the broadest sense of that and uh, that's the unmade podcast. Yeah, that is awesome. I have truly enjoyed listening to the podcast more more than any other podcast. And I still can't quite nail down exactly what I love about it. But it's I think one reason that people like podcasts, and especially with two different hosts, is that as a listener, you start to feel involved with the hosts. So like now. I hop in the car and I'm oh, here's a new podcast from the Unmade Podcast or a new episode. And now it's like, all right, it's me, Tim and Brady driving to work. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and I think that people get that feeling of being involved in this almost in this friendship. And so how is it for you and Brady, where you've got this kind of lifelong friendship? You you said you go way back, right? Mm. But now you're sharing a small portion of that friendship and just some general good times you're sharing this with a thousand ten thousand i don't know how many listeners you have but all of these more or less strangers yeah and it's it's that's part of the pleasure i think the reason it resonates so strongly is because it's genuine this is Mm -hmm. a, a genuine moment you know like our in our friendship I mean, it's it's not it genuine in the sense that, you know, we're obviously talking deliberately. We're creating a podcast, but we don't make stuff up. We don't lie. We don't say, oh, this is happening. We don't fabricate it. You know what I mean? We're, 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 we're talking. We say things that are true all the time. And the thing that I think resonates is that the relationship is genuine as well. So the person that's most satisfying for me to get to laugh is, is Brady, right? So making him laugh, sharing something with him is something that gives me an enormous amount of joy and always has. And so where, where he lives overseas, I'm in Adelaide in Australia and he lives over in the UK. So we're texting all the time, right? And a lot of that is the similar kind of thing. And we're talking as well, you know, and he comes out to visit and I go over there to visit every couple of years. We see each other, but the relationship is real and making him laugh all the time is uh, what I really enjoy. And he's the same with me. And so the bits that we record is just a snapshot of, of that, you know, and I think people can see the flow and the authenticity of that. I'm glad. <laughs> I'm glad they do. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's truly a wholesome podcast. And I think that resonates with a lot of people as well. And you've kind of built this community with all kinds of weird inside jokes. I just want to say to the listeners, like if you're just looking for 
a new podcast that is entertaining and wholesome, definitely check out the Unmade Podcast. You won't be disappointed. There's some great sports, some great food, <laughs> everything you can want in the podcast. Music, I mean, money for nothing every episode. <laughs> <laughs> Look, there's a one of the interesting things I've noticed, and I never expected this, is how many kids really love the podcast. I didn't expect that. And certainly we have listeners of all ages, uh, you know, and mm -hmm. I got some friends in their sixties that really love it. You know, a professor that I know and another retired, you know, private school uh, headmaster, he really loves it. You know, they're, they're sort of retired folks all the way through. And then, but also these kids love it as well. And the fact that we, I don't know. I get you say it's wholesome. We we actually have these special wholesome episodes where we only talk about purely wholesome things, which is <laughs> really really a lot of fun as well. We do we do fun wholesome things like fly a kite, which is <laughs> which is great fun. But yeah, the kids seem to really love it too, and and get into the spirit of it, even if there there's some things that maybe slip over their head. Uh, that's great. But that's a really interesting, surprising little audience there that I I didn't expect. That's cool. Would you ever have expected that the sofa shop jingle would obtain such infamy? Yes. Well, it's a masterful song. I mean, <laughs> it's one of the great, one of the great, great, great works of the 20th century. Let's be honest. It uh, <laughs> look to write a good jingle is, is a hard art. You know, you can write, I could write a long ambient piece. I love ambient music. I couldn't write a great classical piece, of course, or anything like that. But, you know, to actually write something that sticks in your mind, you know, that's that's hard to do. That's uh, good pop craftsmanship. And the sofa shop is, uh, oh, yeah. is a masterpiece. Yeah. <laughs> and I tell you what, it does stick in your mind. I mean, how often do you come out with a new episode? Once a week? We've actually been changing this a little bit. We did for a couple of years. We, we were doing it around once a month. And then we, we, during the COVID time, we decided to increase that a little bit. I guess the nature of our working days and things changed a little bit. So we've been doing them approximately once a week. And I think now we're somewhere in between, maybe every 10 days or so. But we've really increased the rhythm. Of, and partly we've just really enjoyed that. So they've been coming out sure. pretty regularly. Yeah. Yeah, I've noticed the increase and it's much appreciated. But now I can't get the sofa shop jingle out of my head. I'll just be walking down the road or driving or whatever. And there's the sofa shop. You may need to explain to people what that is. I mean, this is, this is a, a jingle for a sofa store. That's just fantastic. But, but since we've been celebrating it, people have been sending in their own versions of it. We've got a country version and a lounge version, a heavy metal version and a heavily electronic and dance for people will just continually send in new versions of this. And it's catching up to the Beatles yesterday is probably the most covered song of all time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome. And I won't, uh, I won't bore any listeners who haven't seen the show with going into more of that stuff, but it's honestly like you got to listen, you got to listen to the podcast. It's absolutely worth doing. I just have one more question for you about the podcast. Sure. How I know you said that you've kind of started ramping up a little bit as you've been able to find a little bit more time and your work schedules and things. But how is that, you know, you're wearing kind of your college hat, you're wearing your minister hat, you're wearing your father and husband hats, and now here's this other hat 
that you're, that you're, you've decided that you, you want to put on, how do you balance that time and actually find the time to have that creative outlet without, you know, all of your other endeavors that you're working on suffering? Yeah. I mean, I don't know if the other things <laughs> don't suffer. I, I <laughs> do enjoy doing a, a diversity of things. And I, I don't know if it's because mm-hmm. I have a wide range of interests or because I get bored easily, but I have always had a lot of things on the go and have enjoyed jumping between them, jumping from serious things to, to, to lighter things. And so being in a couple of different roles where, you know, I'm working with people and doing the Christian ministry in the local church for half the week. After a few days of that, you know, I actually quite like, I come into the, the other office here at the academic college and uh, it's more of an introverted time. You're still teaching with people, of course, and dealing with and relating to faculty and others, but in some mm-hmm. meetings, but it's a different gear. And I like changing gears like that in the week. I like having, you know, I'm always reading a couple of different books. There's nonfiction books, which is dealing with, you know, theology or culture or something like that. And then I love reading novels at the same time. And then I love fitting in. I just like to fit things in the gaps. I think I enjoy doing very little. I enjoy sitting and, and being with the family at home and being present. And then I sort of go, well, let's go, let's go for a walk or let's go to a, you know, a cafe. Mm-hmm. I love going out for dinner. I love films. And then in the midst of that, I'll be, you know, texting with Brady about making arrangements for things. And then you go off and do the podcast, but I think you can be a lot more, I guess there is a default setting in me somewhere that's that's it's a bit of a driver you know looking to be active and to be doing things probably much less now than it was when i was younger but i i like doing a variety and it's incredible how much more you can do when when you don't watch as much television and <laughs> i don't <laughs> i i think that's that's probably the case you know the average person watches about four and a half hours of television a day a day yeah. I mean, that's just phenomenal. And you know, you think oh, I might binge from time to time or watch something. Like, hey, look, I'm not saying don't watch television. I, I watch, I watch Netflix series uh, and I, and I love them. I, and I watch a bit of sport. I definitely watch, but if you watch one hour, that's really different to watching four hours or that being the thing you do, you know, you can make a podcast in an hour, you know, you could make one every day. You could, you can write an article for a, a, a publication, you know, that takes you a couple of hours where well, you can do that. You can do that every day, you know? So I live in the city, so I don't, I guess I don't have as much travel time, Adelaide being a small city. So I, I just like to, to do things, but let me tell you, I, I don't think I'm hugely productive or busy. I just feel like I, I am able to structure life in a way where I can do a few things part-time. Someone else will be in one role and it's a big role and they're doing that full-time that's, that's perfectly valid. I just tend to enjoy the variety of things. Yeah. Very cool. Thank you for sharing. If people are wanting to follow you online, what's the best way for them to either get in contact with you or just follow you on, on social media? Social media I use most regularly is, is Twitter. I actually really enjoy Twitter. I have a Facebook account, but you know, I'm, I don't like Facebook so much. It feels kind of predatory these days, doesn't it? And (laughs) (laughs) uh, Twitter, I enjoy, I enjoy the banter. I enjoy getting news through there. I enjoy the variety of it as well. You know, it's serious and then not so serious. And then 
deep and important. So yeah, yeah, Tim underscore Hine. I'm on Twitter if, if that's of any interest to people. There are websites, of course, for the college and uh, the, the, the church is just got a temporary website at the moment. We're about to do a big, you know, kind of rebrand and everything because we're doing a new strategic plan heading in a new direction and everything. So that'll be looking a bit better in, in a little while. But Tim underscore Hine at, at Twitter is where I tend to share more than I probably should. So. <laughs> <laughs> Well, are there any last bits of advice or any requests that you'd have for our listeners? Well, that's being asked to share advice is dangerous, isn't it? it, it <laughs> <laughs> what if they take you up on it? Uh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. It's also, uh, in terms of advice, what what's, uh, it's hard. You'd feel like I need to come up with something grand, you know, but I don't have anything grand. I think I have something simple. Hopefully it's like elegantly simple. Perhaps it isn't, but it's probably that the advisors seek truth and light. I guess I like, I'm always inquiring and curious and the way I make my world way through life, I guess is by, by being curious and being um, seeking to, you know, get behind things, push through things, not just assume the presumptions. And in terms of faith, that's led me to a relationship with God and, and an understanding of Christianity that may not be, what people expect or, or look for. But if there is a God, then all truth is God's truth. And so seeking truth, not just being satisfied with what's being sold, but, but pushing further and seeking and exploring, I think is kind of the quest of, of life and seeing where that, that takes you. So that's probably the only advice I dare to give in this kind of setting. Anyway, keep seeking because if there is a God of love and justice, then that God is, is seeking you and wants relationship with you. Solid advice. I love that. Well, Tim, thank you so much for taking the time to hop on the podcast with us today. You have a good one. My great pleasure. Thank you so much for chatting, Taylor. It's been great. Thanks for listening, everybody. There is only one podcast that I've listened to every single episode, and it's Tim's. You should really check it out if you're looking for a wholesome listen. I'm also partway through his book right now, and let me tell you, it's very enlightening. If sexual abuse is something you're interested in gaining a little bit more sensitivity toward, you should definitely support him and pick up a copy. As always, keep building. Keep building.